also told them of the manner in which I had been knocked down and dragged out and that I didn't consider it a fair fight anyhow they could fix it. I put the ingredients in the cup pretty strong, I tell you, and I concluded my speech by telling them that I was done with politics for the present and they might all go to hell and I would go to Texas. Those words spoken by none other than Davy Crockett, the king of the wild frontier. Back in 1835, he was giving a, a speech, uh, as he as he uh, as he mentions, and uh, it was he had just lost his bid for uh, Congress, and uh, and apparently he didn't like the way it went down, and so he said that he was going to go to Texas and he did David Crockett did go to Texas in 1835 and you know as much as I uh, as much as I am a fan of Texas I've been here since 1982 Um, and so it always I mean anytime somebody says they're going to go to Texas that, that always sounds like a good idea to me but in this particular case you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't, at least in his best interest, uh, because that was 1835, and of course, 1836, Davy Crockett died at the Alamo, uh, and it wasn't, no matter what version of the story you believe, it wasn't pretty, and so, um, uh, but anyway, that, uh, uh, the thing that he couldn't have known in 1836, that, uh, decide, let's see, how old was he then? He was, I think he was like 49, so he had plenty of life ahead of him. And uh, so in 1836, uh, when, when Davy Crockett made his last stand, um, the thing he couldn't have known is that if he'd stayed alive just 30 more years, let's see, that would have put him, well, that would have made him pretty old. That would have made him 79. Nowadays, that's not so old. But back then, I guess, back in the 1800s, if you lived to be 79, you're, <laughs> you're probably uh, beating the odds, beating the odds, as they say. But, um, but had he stayed alive, then uh, just 30 more years to 1866, then uh, he would have, uh, he'd have been around for the first Texas oil well and really the beginning of, of the Texas oil boom, which, uh, which, you know, by all accounts was an exciting time. Uh, to be to be in the great state of Texas. Now, uh, by the way, though, now this this today's episode is is features Texas because I want to get to um, to the oil boom and in particular we're going to talk about Spindletop uh, because there was besides the fact that uh, that it's in Texas and I'm in Texas and 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 uh, but but there was there was Spindletop. You know, everybody. Well. Oh, maybe not everybody knows, but but uh, it's known as the the big gusher that uh, kicked off the Texas oil boom, and and not only just Texas, but really for for this part of the world, um, a lot happened as a result. Uh, and I'm, we're going to get into that today. I'll tell you a little, a little about that story, but um, but there was also a great deal of ingenuity <laughs> because the uh, Spindletop well was not drilled, was not drilled like the other ones that, uh, those other early wells that we've talked about. And, and so we want to get to that now, uh, back to, uh, 1866, the first, now the first oil well in Texas was, uh, and by the way, I, you know, do you, I'm kind of, I'm curious, do, so here in, in, you know, for all, for all the people that are in the, in the oil business or related to it, for those of you who are not in Texas, uh, or from Texas, do, do you ever get tired of, so much talk about Texas. I feel like maybe we 
you know, like maybe we overdo it sometimes. And, uh, you know, Texas this and Texas that and Texas and oil and oil in Texas and, and Texas. And it's, don't get me wrong. I, I do love, I, I do, I do love life here, even though, even though I was surprised to find out from a recent mainstream media uh, piece of, it wasn't a poll, I don't know, some sort of survey. Anyway, apparently Texas is the worst place to live <laughs> in the United States. So I don't understand why people are moving here because it's the worst place. What was it? I think it was CNBC. Anyway, somebody somebody just decided that Texas is the worst place to live, which explains uh, <laughs> nothing. So um, uh, where was I? Oh, yeah. But yeah, yeah I, get the, I get the sense that... Okay, so here's an example of why I, why I think this sometimes. Um, I went... Oh, boy, it's been some years back. It's been quite a few years ago. I'm going to say 10 years ago. 10 years ago, something like that. I was, uh, I was on a layover. I don't remember where I was going, but I was on a layover in Kansas City. And um, uh, I was at the airport in Kansas City for a couple of hours, and I decided to get some, something to eat. Uh, and of course, Kansas City uh, is famous for barbecue. Texas is famous for, bar- for <laughs> Texas is famous for barbecue. Te- Kansas City is as well. Lots of places in the U.S. are famous for barbecue. But what you learn, if you are a student of such, that uh, it it varies. It's not the same, and it doesn't mean that one state's bar. You know, well, that's not barbecue. They, they all have their own, um, or, or or several places in the United States each have their own. Uh, style and approach to barbecue and they can all be fantastic and uh, I, I'm a big I'm, um, uh, I'm, I'm kind of you might say I'm into that a little bit so um, uh, what was I saying oh yeah Kansas City and I'm, uh, I'm in the airport and I go to this barbecue place it was really good it was a good bar I mean they had the they had the the, the big the, the cookers and the, actually in the I don't know if they were just for show or if they actually used them but anyway I'm sitting at the bar and um and I said to the bartender, whoever was behind the counter, I said, uh, I see your, uh, your smokers there made in Texas. And she said, you must be from Texas. And I said, why? And she said, because only, only people from Texas ever noticed that. <laughs> so, so that's kind of stuck with me. And, and I sometimes wonder if maybe, uh, especially in the oil business uh, and oil and gas, maybe, maybe, maybe you get tired of hearing about Texas. But today, we're going to, uh, uh, there was something pretty exciting that happened. Now, uh, like I said, had Davy Crockett, uh, had, he, had he been around for a few more years, uh, in his old age, he would have seen in Nacogdoches County, Texas, so in, in East Texas. And of course, those of you, uh, I mean, it's, it's it's well known that up in East Texas, there's what is that the what play is that up there? What do they call it? Um, East Texas, the not the Marsalis. Anyway, I'm starting to I'm losing it. I got too many, I'm holding too many things in my head right now. Uh, but the point is that uh, that was a that was a um, in 1866 uh, there was the uh, the first well, and it only produced ten barrels of oil a day. Um, but it was very exciting for the people in, uh, what town was this? Um, anywhere in that area, it was, it was exciting. It turned it into, uh, it turned it into kind of a, um, into a boom town. Uh, but fast forward a little bit and we get to this, uh, well, and then, then there was the Corsicana oil well, um, in Texas, which was a few years later. I don't remember when that was. And that was, I think now, um, don't, uh, don't, 
don't quote me on this, but I think that the well in Corsicana a few years later was the first well to use a rotary rig, to actually use rotary drilling. And so that's one of the things that I wanted to get to today, which is, uh, you know, we talked about the cable tool and the thunk, 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 thunk of the chisel bit. Um, oh, not that fast, not that fast, of course. I bet they would have liked to have gone that fast. And, um, um, and, but eventually we all know that, you know, when you say drilling for oil these days or drilling for anything, really, what we think about is a drill that, that, that spins, uh, a rotary drill. And so, uh, I believe, I believe the, the will in Corsicana was the first rotary, but I don't know. I might be wrong about that, but I do know, I do know what I'm about to tell you, um, is let's see, hold on. Let me get some notes out. So, so I'm not just rambling all this stuff out now here. Well, well, actually let me get... Groundbreakers, the book. Do that again. Groundbreakers, the book. Um, this is the. Uh, I've talked about this book before. If you don't, if you haven't heard me talk about this book, it means you missed at least three episodes, so you need to catch up. Um, here we are. Uh, oh, the other thing. So a couple, a few things come together uh, with Spindletop, and uh, and one of them, I believe, Spindletop was. Th- uh, that, well, I know that they used, uh, they used rotary drilling. That's been, it wasn't the first case, but, but, uh, but it was a big part of the success. And, uh, the other thing, but the, the thing that was really new about spindle top, uh, is, uh, is related to salt domes of which spindle top is one. Now, nowadays in the oil business, we, you know, people talk about salt domes all the time and we know there's all kinds of salt domes around the Gulf Coast and off in the, and there's, in in um, uh, what's the thing, the Gulf, <laughs> Gulf of Mexico. And, and, and in recent years, we've developed all sorts of fancy seismic technology to figure out, to be able to, you know, survey underneath salt domes because you can't just look straight through them. So let me give you a little idea what's going on here. Now, this is from Groundbreakers and, uh, in the, uh, in the section that talks about Spindletop, uh, starts off with this. The other geologic idea of the era. Now, do you remember the first geologic idea? We covered that a couple episodes back. We were talking about anticlines. And those uh, anticlines are those, uh, you know, the, the part, the areas where the ground pushes up and forms like an arch. Well, it's not really an arch it's because it's three-dimensional. But if you look at a cross-section, it looks like an arch, and the oil kind of pools up at the top. Uh, and all those uh, th- those new ideas that came out uh, from the early geologists in the 1800s. What was that guy's name? Charles something or other. Um, uh, so if you missed that, it's in the Weird Science episode. Uh, the reason I called it Weird Science is because the early geologists were, uh, it, it was, for, I mean, it was not mainstream. It was Weird Science at the time. Nobody had had tried to do that, and there was definitely some skeptics. Uh, but fortunately, they, they, they uh, continued on, not realizing how important it was going to be to uh, basically power the world in the next century. But here in Groundbreakers... The other geologic idea of the era centered on underground salt domes, a concept that would precipitate an oil boom on the U.S. Gulf Coast at the beginning of the 20th century. So here we are at the end of the 19th century, and, uh, and the, 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 the geologists, somebody, I think I'm going to get to who here in just a second, but uh, somebody said, there's oil in them there, salt domes. Now, of course, I, I'm not sure that they, well, they understood salt domes 
because they'd been mining for salt. Uh, and in fact, let's see, let's let's bounce over here. I think I think I got a little story on that. Uh, hold on, because there was this guy. Well, first of all, one of the one of the people that's often associated with uh, Spindletop, uh, and as I said before, Spindletop was a, a salt dome. Um, uh, so there was this guy, uh, Patillo Higgins or Patillo Higgins. I I want to say his first name in Spanish style. Um, I've heard it said both ways, by the way. Um, but nothing in his fa- his family is Spanish language, so uh, like his like his parents were like you know, like like Eugene and Ethel or something like that. So I don't know why he has this first name. And and he was a colorful figure, by the way. If you've ever heard the story about Patillo Higgins, Higgins, Patillo Higgins, Patillo Higgins. Anyway, Mr. Higgins, Mr. Higgins, um, in his younger years was quite the hellraiser and got into quite a lot of trouble. Um, almost got convicted of murder uh, and. Uh, and then he found, he, he got religion. He got religion, Mr. Higgins. Uh, of course, the Southern Baptists were, were very influential down here in Texas at the time. I guess they still are. And uh, Mr. Higgins got religion and cleaned up his act. And uh, he went into, started some, you know, some legit business activities. And one of which was uh, he got into, uh, into the oil business. Now, Mr. Higgins at this time was living near Beaumont in Southeast Texas. And uh, he did, so he didn't know about the of course Spindletop is near Beaumont, but he didn't. Uh, Mr. Higgins did not know about the whole salt dome idea. He just knew that he was seeing gas seepages that were uh, you know coming out of the grounds um, in this uh, this area called Spindletop, like on the flat plain of Spindletop. So it's like a hill kind of thing, and then up at the top it's flat. And and he was seeing these gas seepages. Um, and so that kind of got him interested in this uh, new science of geology. And again, it was really early, um, really early. And uh, but he but he got interested, and uh, and he was he was reading some stuff, um, and uh, and he learned about anticlines, and he thought that's it. Spindletop is an anticline. Well, he wasn't he wasn't far off, but uh, but it wasn't quite. It wasn't quite what he thought it was, but nonetheless, that was a good reason to, to drill. Uh, you know, try to try to try to get oil. Now it didn't go well. So for six years, Mr. Higgins, um, he drilled six wells in six years, and got bupkis, nothing. Uh, well, I will tell you what he did get. He he got up to his eyeballs and maybe a little higher than that in debt, um, and so he had to do something. One last roll of the dice, and uh, and so he was looking for help, and he found this guy. Um, uh, where is it? Oh, yeah, here we go. Captain Anthony Francis Lucas. Lucas had moved to the <laughs> to it's it's the reading that trips me up, folks. Lucas had moved to the U.S. from Austria, where he had studied engineering and then spent time in the Navy. Lucas knew about drilling, but luckily for Higgins, he also knew about salt. Now, why did Captain Lucas know about salt? Well, because uh, if you look into his story, you find out that he was he was doing some salt mining uh, on the eastern seaboard of the United States, and so he knew a thing or two about salt domes. And um, uh, and while he was working in, uh, you know, while he was, I, I don't know if he was laboring away in the salt mines. I mean, he was an engineer, so maybe he was, maybe he was just a guy figuring out how shit works, but, uh, or how to make it work. But anyway, uh, let's see here. Yeah. He was, uh, exploring for salt, uh, on Avery Island, 
wherever that is. Oh, oh, Louisiana. Sorry, sorry, not the Eastern Seaboard. This was down. This is down in Louisiana, um, and uh, so along the Gulf Coast, and he was exploring for salt, and uh, he found sulfur and traces of oil and gas. So, this this is a recurring theme in the, in the history of this industry, where people are doing one thing uh, with one intention, and they go, "Hey, I think." There might be oil there, or 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 whatever. So, uh, so he basically stumbled on uh, the second type of geologic structure harboring oil and gas: the salt dome. Now, uh, the rest, as they say, is history, because uh, because Mr. Higgins and Miss and Captain Lucas teamed up. I think mostly it was. I think the captain was kind of taking charge at this point. I think he told. He told Higgins, just stand over there and try not to lose any more money. <laughs> I can just see it. Like, I need a military guy on this job right here. So, uh, um, anyway, so they, the two of them, or, or, or uh, Lucas started working for Higgins, and, um, and of course, he convinced Higgins that it was a salt dome, um, and, uh, and that salt domes were even more interesting than anticlines and worth investi- investigating. And uh, so Captain Lucas got to work, and the next thing you know, bada-boom, bada-bing, one of the most famous oil gushers in history, Spindletop 1901, and the beginning of salt dome exploration, which uh, became very popular after this, uh, it led to lots of wildcatting, and and they they found a lot of salt domes um, around uh, around the Gulf region. They didn't find nearly as many as were there, um, you know. So they found like I don't know thirty or something like that, but there were hundreds. And and the reason they couldn't find them was because well they didn't have geophysics yet, <laughs> but, but that was going to come. That was going to come. Uh, uh, I don't know, 20 or 30 years later, they would, they would, uh, at least the early, the early stages of modern geophysics would allow us to find, uh, all the rest of those salt domes. But in the meantime, uh, they were pretty excited with what they found. There were some other things that happened. Now I want to tell you about Spindletop cause it was remarkable. Um, but, uh, it's interesting to know not only was it the first, uh, salt dome, uh, you know, project, but, um, also this was the time I mentioned the rotary drilling earlier. This was the time when drilling, uh, that went through kind of a minor revolution. (laughs) Pardon, pardon the pun. I don't think I did that on purpose. Um, and, and you started to see, it was at this time, Spindletop used a rotary bit with the, with the twin, what do you call those things? The tails, the, the fish tails on them. Um, and, uh, in fact, uh, Captain Lucas was a, was a believer in the twin fishtail as opposed to the single, and um, and but it took a while. The, there was there's an interesting story, and we'll do this in another episode where uh, as the transition from um, uh, cable tool to rotary uh, was not as straightforward as you might expect. I mean, you would think somebody would go, "Hey, this is way better. Let's everybody use this," but it was wasn't quite that simple. But that is a story for a different episode. Also, something that uh, that you see come about here, uh, either uh, either during the spindle top, I think it's during the spindle top uh, period, or shortly after we start to see drilling mud come into play. Also, for another day. Now, uh, to wrap this one up today, folks, let me let me give you a little uh, little perspective. What exactly happened? Now, if you you, you may have seen the spindle top, if you haven't seen a photo of the spindle top oil field of the gusher, the uh, the uh, the Lucas Gusher. Um, 
you look at it, it's it's a it's a remarkable photo. Yeah, 1901. They got a they got a picture of it. Um, uh, and it, it, and when you see the photo, you'll probably go, oh yeah, I've seen that before. It was uh, it was remarkable. Now, here this is an account from an historical account um, that I guess was written in the 70s. Yeah, 1976. This is an article. I think it's an article, or maybe it's an excerpt from a book. I can't quite tell. But this is Robert Wooster and Christine Moore Sanders. So. If you guys are out there, thanks for putting this together. Some great pictures, historical photos in here. You can find this uh, where where you can where can you find this uh, Texas State Historical Association. Texas easy easy for me to say. Texas State Historical Association. Um, uh, from October to January 1901. So that presumably October 1900 to January 1901. Uh, Lucas and the Hamels, uh, so I didn't mention those, but the Hamels uh, were a couple of brothers, I think, um, who, who were involved in this whole uh, drilling thing. I think um, Lucas hired the Hamels or somebody, I forget how everybody got involved with this. But anyway, um, they'd been struggling to, uh, this, these were oil sands, and uh, let's see, yeah, they struggled to overcome the difficult oil sands, which had stymied previous drilling efforts. Now, there's a, this is a long, you know, the part I'm not telling you the story because it would take too long is it didn't just like like uh, Higgins didn't just go get Lucas and they went out there drilled the well and boom there was uh, um, there was a lot of th- there was there were some failures going on I, not not with these guys in particular but uh, but they had to overcome the the things that were stymieing the previous drilling efforts so once again the ingenuity of the oil field uh, overcomes overcomes the obstacles and on January tenth. Mud began bubbling from the hole, which, by the way, startled the roughnecks, and uh, they ran away as six tons. They like literally like hightailed it and ran, um, and as uh, uh, six tons of six tons, twelve thousand pounds of four-inch drilling pipe came shooting up out of the ground six tons of four inch now four i mean four inches you know that's a that's how big some drilling pipe is um it's also how big uh the 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 ductwork is that i had to put in for the uh for the vent over my over my stove um it you know it's just not that big so to get, to get six tons of it i i don't even know how long that is but anyway um six tons so that so the roughnecks hauled ass as six tons of four-inch drilling pipe came shooting up out of the ground. Then there were several minutes of quiet, which had to be really creepy. So this, so this like mile-long like like arrow comes shooting out of the ground, and then it's quiet. Um, then mud, then gas, and then out. Came the oil, the Lucas Geyser found, which was found at a depth of 1,139 feet, blew a stream of oil over 100 feet high until it was capped nine days later. So for nine days, this son of a bitch is shooting oil 100 feet in the air. And all the people are going, what the fuck are we going to do? So, um, uh... (laughs) <laughs> uh and uh anyway eventually they they capped it and then they got it to uh, also something else that came into play here if i remember correctly the christmas tree 
That'll also be something for another day. But the first, uh, whoever the guy was that came up with the whole Christmas tree thing for controlling flow, I believe they brought one of those in. And uh, and anyway, they got this thing to a uh, an estimated hundred thousand barrels a day of flow. Uh, now keep in mind that first, um, <laughs> just to put it in perspective. That first, uh, this is 1900, 1901, that first Texas oil well in 1866 that Davy Crockett missed out on because he died at the Alamo, that thing put out 10 barrels a day. We are now, we are now, what is this, uh, 34, 35 years later, we're flowing 100,000 barrels a day. Um, and uh, they finally controlled the geyser on January 19th when a huge pool of oil surrounded it and throngs of oilmen, speculators, and onlookers had transformed the city of Beaumont. So while this thing is, is gushing, the whole city changes. People are flocking, things are like shit's going on. And, uh, and it says here, uh, Mr. Wooster and, uh, I'm sorry, I forget her name. And, and Miss Moore Sanders, uh, concur that a new age was born. The world had never seen such a gusher before. By September 1901, there were at least six successful will, wells, wills, September 19. So this is just, you know, what is this? It was January, so September, nine months later, uh, there were at least six successful wells on Gladys City Company lands. That's the, if you read earlier in the story, that was who owned the land that they, that they leased this from. Um, so after... After uh, some pretty miserable failures, which we kind of skipped over in this story, uh, all of a sudden there's six, six successful wells, and these things are putting out oil like nobody's business. Now, here's what happened, and this is and this is the the ups and you know the thing that this type of stuff, uh, this type of industry, um, you know, these landmark events, uh, it does you know it's not all. It, 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 you can see where the volatility starts to come in. Because even now, what happened in that part of Texas? Well, wild speculation drove land prices all around the Spindletop area. To, to remark, I mean, just, you know, all of a sudden, all the land became very expensive. Uh, it says here, one guy had been trying to sell his tract. His little, he's got some tract of land. I don't know how big it is. He was trying to sell it for 150 bucks For three years, he's trying to sell it for 150 bucks, And all of a sudden, he sold it for 20000 and the buyer turned around, like flipped it to somebody else within 15 minutes for $50,000. At which point the first guy's going, shit, how did that happen? Um, but, uh, uh, so this was, ha- so, so the, so the speculation drives the land prices up. Um, and the population in, in uh, Beaumont went from 10,000 to 50,000. I mean, Imagine if you're whatever town you live in. Imagine all of a sudden it's five times as many people, uh, and the legal mess and the deal making and um, let's see here. An estimated two hundred and thirty-five million had been invested in oil that year in Texas. This is nine. This is turn of the century. The previous turn of the century, two hundred thirty-five million. Um, and so people began making fortunes and other people lost everything because they got taken advantage of or, or whatever happened. They made a bad deal or something like that. So, um, but so it was a wild time and the wild time continued. And, uh, but, but without question, without any doubt, 
whatsoever. It was clear that the industry had taken a new turn and things were going to change. And they did change uh, because up until this time, you know, mostly oil production was mostly used for producing heating oil, kerosene. I think it had been invented since the middle 1800s, something like that. And now all of a sudden, thanks to all of the really smart people who had worked out all the really difficult things about geology and about engineering, uh, the, the, the drilling, the, the salt domes, the, uh, and, and all the countless, the, how to control flow, all of the countless <laughs> things that they had, you know, to, uh, to figure out and to devise ways of doing, they did. And now it's not just about getting enough oil to heat our homes and light up our streets. Now we're going to be able to produce enough of this stuff to do all kinds of things with it, to power travel. People are going to be able to travel in many more directions much faster than they could before. That, of course, accelerates all kinds of other things. And, and we're, going to use this, uh, we're going to use this product to change the world as we know it uh, and, and really to change the trajectory of human society and even human civilization now. I know that the next hundred years uh, from this point is not all uh, rainbows and unicorns. As they say, uh, there's ups and downs and ins and outs and goods and bads that happen. But, uh, but the fact is that um, the world got better for a lot of people and it, and it stayed better and kept getting better. And I don't know. Uh, I don't know what it would have been like, and I touched on this a little bit last week uh, from a different from a different angle, but, you know, what would our life today be like? What would it have been like the last 100 and some odd years had these, uh, had these early uh, pioneers in oil and gas not had the determination and, and the ingenuity to, to figure out and overcome all the things that they had to? Like, I, you know, I don't know what it would be like today, but if I were a betting man... I think I'd have to put my money on, uh, on, 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 it's not good. It wouldn't be as good. It wouldn't be as good. We would, we would not be in as well positioned today. I, Cause I'm not just talking about, um, I'm not just talking about the comforts that we have, uh, come to take for granted. And we talk about those all the time, but what about this? Anybody ever think about this? Maybe, maybe all of the, uh, the technology and the, and the innovation and the progress that was made possible by affordable, abundant, uh, reliable energy. Maybe that gave us the technology and, and, and the capabilities that we have today, which actually are going to be important to uh, sustaining our way of life and even sustaining human life on this planet uh, come whatever may, whether it be climate or any of the other things that threaten our existence and whether it comes now or we find a way to hold it off until later, uh, the timing I think is not, uh, not as much of a factor perhaps maybe as our ability to deal with whatever we got to deal with. And that ability, I got to believe is better now as a result of the progress that we have seen as a result of having the energy that we've had. And so I think we're better positioned now to deal with whatever's coming at us than we would have been had we not had what we've had. And so I think we got to thank the oil and gas industry for that. Mm -hmm. 